Welcome to the Independent News Hour. In the headlines today, more New Yorkers are eligible for the COVID-19 vaccine, but supplies remain scarce. The nightly closing of the subways will be reduced from four hours to two. The supporters of a Bronx man facing deportation, despite living in the United States since he was seven years old, demand his release. Good evening. In New York, I'm John Tarleton, editor-in-chief of The Independent, New York City's progressive newspaper and website. In the news, millions of New Yorkers with chronic conditions are now eligible to receive the COVID-19 vaccine, but supplies remain scarce. Speaking earlier today, Mayor Bill de Blasio said the city could do a half million vaccinations per day if the doses were available. Yeah, the supply has to pick up. It's not a rate problem. So let's let's put together two key facts. We, you know, you saw we did uh, 330,000 last week. We could be doing half a million per week right now, right now. Uh, give us the supply. That's exactly what we'll do. We have the centers. We have the staffing. Give us the supply. And that's my message to the federal and state government. Give us the supply and we'll do half a million per week. Two million per month. Now, that's with a two-dose reality. Even with that, we could still hit the June goal. But we're about to get reinforcements with a single-dose vaccine from Johnson & Johnson. That's going to greatly improve the situation. Meanwhile, Governor Andrew Cuomo is still reeling from revelations that his administration covered up the COVID-19 deaths of thousands of nursing home patients. Cuomo acknowledged Monday that his administration had created a, quote, void of information around the death of as many as 12,000 elderly New Yorkers in nursing homes last spring. Around the death of as many as 12,000 elderly New Yorkers in nursing homes last spring at the height of the pandemic. But he denied there was a deliberate cover-up. Last April, the Independent's Ted Ham was the first reporter to reveal Cuomo's gift of a legal immunity shield to nursing home operators who had poured millions of dollars into his campaign coffers. He says that an investigation of Cuomo's conduct should go forward. Cuomo looked uncharacteristically off his game. Uh, in terms of when he, if you look at him when he's speaking, he's blinking a lot and really sort of uh, grasping for the right words. So there's something going on that we need to find out more. It's an obvious cover-up, and the fact that he is unwilling to even admit that they were failing to provide basic information suggests there's something more to the story. In other pandemic news, the MTA has announced the subways will only be closed two hours per night instead of the current four, starting February 22nd. Quote, New York is starting to return to normalcy, said Sarah Feinberg, interim president of the New York City Transit Authority, which operates the subways. The subways have been closed from 1 to 5 a.m. since last May for overnight cleaning, even though scientists have since learned that most COVID transmission occurs through airborne particles, not surface transmission. Under the new schedule, the subways will be closed from 2 to 4 a.m. Danny Perlstein of Writers Alliance NY says the MTA and Governor Cuomo must do more. New Yorkers depend on frequent and reliable subway service on every line all across the city, day and night. Tens of thousands of riders need overnight service to get to and from critical jobs, often on the front lines of COVID. It's an important step to bring partial reopening to the subway, but riders will keep pushing for that full reopening. Also here in New York, 150 members of the Professional Staff Congress rallied Monday outside of the City University of New York headquarters. They demanded that CUNY reverse its decision to deny pay raises to 1,300 administrative staff. 
Another 1,300 lecturers could also lose their $1,000 pay equity increase on April 1st. This is Union President Barbara Bowen. A small and simple raise that we negotiated specifically to try to close salary gaps between the lower and the higher paid workers, and in this case, to address gaps in salary that are based on race and gender, um, we negotiated a raise for $1,000 per year, modest increase for a certain category of workers, and then not to pay that is adding insult to injury. And it's also compounding inequities of race and class while we have a CUNY administration that boasts about its record on diversity and inclusion. They should step up, pay this increase right now, and the union will fight until they do. In the second half of this show, we'll look back on the epic labor struggle that began 10 years ago this week with the takeover of the Wisconsin state capitol by public sector union members and their supporters. Yesterday, anti-ICE advocates and supporters of Javier Castillo Maradiaga convened in Foley Square to protest his potential deportation. In 2019, Javier, 27, was snared by ICE after an NYPD stop and frisk led to his arrest. He has been in the U.S. since he was seven and was a DACA recipient. Despite community efforts to stop Javier's deportation and the Biden administration's 100-day deportation moratorium, ICE is refusing to grant him parole. This is his sister, Dariella, speaking at yesterday's rally. First of all, I want to thank you because you've been with us for... uh... A little while already, it's going to be a month, and we keep fighting for the same thing. Why are we fighting? For a right to be free. Because that's a right. Freedom. My skin shouldn't decide if I run free in the streets or I have to be in jail. That's right. These people over there, they don't care, though. They don't give a about us anymore. So we want rights for all immigrant communities. And finally, Congress is out on a one-week break after the Senate hastily concluded its impeachment trial on Saturday without calling any witnesses. When we return after this short break, we'll talk more about Donald Trump's second impeachment acquittal and its implications with Linda Martine Alcoth. She's the author of The Future of Whiteness and a brilliant analyst of the intersection of race, gender, and class in American society. You know, this is a drag. Dragging around this heavy plastic bag with every damn thing I own. P.O. promised me a three-quarter house. This breeze on my neck, now they're telling me I'm denied, denied. Back in the city, which way, what street, train stop, bus stop, I might be lost off the Beverly Atlantic to stand in line for four hours just to get to the window. And it went something like this. What bed you in? I'm here to get a bed. Where you from, Bellevue Shelter? No, I'm here to get a bed. You got to go to Bellevue. Denied again. Denied, denied. Exhausted, beat. Hungry, but not broken. Finally got to Bellevue. 
That was Plastic Bag by Carl Dukes and Apostle Heloise as a part of Die Jim Crow, a project that provides current and formerly incarcerated musicians a platform. And you're listening to the Independence News Hour on WBAI in New York. On Saturday, the United States Senate voted by 57 to 43 to convict former President Donald Trump for inciting the January 6th insurrection on Capitol Hill, thus falling 10 votes short of the supermajority needed to, to prevail in an impeachment trial. The Biden administration will take center stage in the coming weeks as it tries to move a massive COVID relief package through a closely divided Congress. However, before we move on, it's important to make sense of the insurrection, the impeachment, and where things might go from here. To help us do that, we are joined by Linda Martine Alkoff, a professor of philosophy at CUNY's at CUNY Hunter College and the author of numerous books, including The Future of Whiteness and Rape and Resistance. She's a longtime contributing writer for The Independent, and her latest article appears in our February edition. It's titled, In Trump's Wake, Social Movements of the Left and Right Battle Over the Future of America. Linda, thanks for coming on the show. Happy to be here, John. You bet. So, first of all, uh, much has been said about the violent means the insurrectionists used uh, when they stormed Capitol Hill on January 6th. But what about the ends? What do you think the insurrectionists were fighting for beyond the simple goal of preserving Donald Trump's presidency? Yeah, it's a, it's a good question. There there is too much focus on the means and law and order. Uh they have they were supporting their own version of law and order, right? There's different notions of what law and order is. But they are right-wing revolutionaries. Um it's a loose coalition. They don't all agree on every point. There's a number of different organizations that were involved. They were around well before Donald Trump. They will be around after Donald Trump. And we really need to have more space in the public discourse to talk about what is it that they want? Uh, what is it that they do stand for? They, they want a strong United States that can be isolationist in the world and bully other countries and will maintain um, their exclusionary privileges, mostly white, but not all, not only white, as we know. It's a little bit, it's a little bit multiracial, multicultural these days, but the Oath Keepers, the Proud Boys, America First, they, they want to go back to the days when um, white privilege meant more than they think it does today. And, uh, you know, they, they want male dominance. They want, um, an, an end to immigration and end to refugees. Um, you know, so they, they have a variety. It's not entirely a coherent worldview that they have. Um, some of it's a little vague, but they, they definitely want, um, to, to defend the exclusionary privileges of, uh, you know, of, of whites. Right. And, and one upshot of the Senate Republicans' ref refusal to convict Trump is it feels like they are inviting his MAGA supporters to do this again in the future. Uh, your thoughts on that? 
Yeah, I think they actually support the agenda at many of the various events that these right-wing revolutionaries have held across the country. There have been Republican Congress people who have spoken at their rallies. I think at every single one, just about, they've had Republican Congress people. So I think that the Republican majority, perhaps, um, or a sizable percentage of of the Republican leadership, um, does support the their agenda and is happy for it to continue and to grow stronger. I mean, Trump himself called it what do you call it the the be- a beautiful movement. So he <laughs> called it a movement, right? Which which indicates it's not just about the election that. I think they really use Trump as much as Trump used them. They use Trump to um, galvanize the base, to motivate people's actions, and as an excuse for um, the kind of action that we saw on January 6th. Right. And uh, in our country, we've lived this movie before when violent white supremacist movements uh, brought down the reconstruction governments of the South a decade after the Civil War ended. And I think it's fair to say that we're currently living in a second reconstruction era that dates back to the landmark victories of the civil rights movement of the mid 1960s. And uh, while the advances we've seen have been imperfect, uh, profound changes have also been wrought by that uh, 1960s era movement, as well as the openings we saw in immigration laws at, at, at the same time. And, you know, it seemed like we had made a permanent transition to a new social order in which being openly racist was seen as unacceptable and, People of color uh, were were playing a larger and much more visible role in public life, and now that's been openly challenged by uh, Trump's movement over the past five years. Do you have a sense of history repeating itself here? That I mean, th- that these people really, you know, want to overturn the social order that we've lived under the past fifty years or so uh, of a, a certain amount of racial progress. Well, that that's a good way to think about it, but I would I would put it slightly differently because I think that um, the second reconstruction from uh, Brown v. Board of Education through the '60s civil rights legislation has really um, failed in large measure to bring economic and racial justice. The carceral system is worse. The wage floor is worse. The capacity for low wage workers, most many of whom are people of color, <clears throat> to have a living wage and own a home and send their kids to college and not worry about their retirement has decreased. Um, healthcare, you know, for many poor people of color is worse. So although I, I don't want to downplay the significant advances that have been made that I've seen in my life because I'm 65 years old. So I've certainly lived through this period. When my sister and I came to the United States as immigrants from Panama, there was no bilingual education in Florida. And, um, you know, speaking only Spanish was really a problem in the schools. Now, you know, bilingual education is is more common throughout the country. So I don't want to downplay the advances, but Seriously, what the the language of the civil rights laws had to be put in this neutral language, individual language that could not really get at the root causes of the problem of racial injustice and economic injustice that exacerbates racial injustice. And 
I think what this this new group of right-wing revolutionaries see is that we are organizing for a third reconstruction that's going to be real, right? That's what our demands are. We're looking for structural changes and systemic changes that can get at more than just cosmetic changes at the top and can really address the causes of the injustice. And they do not want that to happen. So in some ways, they, it's not mm. that they, they want to go back. They, they want to avoid what they see on the horizon, which is what um, the collective uh, left movements are demanding today. Mm. And in your book, The Future of Whiteness, you write that an important storyline in 21st century America will be how whites react to no longer being the numerical majority in this country, which will be the case within the next 20 years. What's your take at this moment on 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 the um, on the on those prospects? Well, I, I think uh, white people are split uh, clearly and uh, much more significantly than they were when I was a child. Um, and I think that political division among how many white people, you know, support Black Lives Matters protests, for example, will probably continue. So I, I don't think that it's going, you know, the, the numbers are going to continue to go up and we're going to get, a, you know, the vast majority of white people on board. But there are sizable numbers, as we saw last summer, and we need to activate the anti-racist whites more to take stronger stands, to step up, to take risks, to organize in their own communities among pe- white people that they know. That's what we have to do to to move to the next stage. Right. And, and, and besides the racism exhibited by the uh, right-wing groups that back Trump, there's also uh, appears to be a deep streak of um, misogyny within their ranks. Uh, can you talk about how that manifested on January 6th and at other times in the past year as he whipped up his supporters uh, against Democratic Party politicians? And also, do you see a connection between the violent attacks on abortion clinics over the past 30 years by uh, right-wing extremists and the kind of violent extremism we're seeing today? Yeah, uh, some of the groups like the Proud Boys, you know, are, are um, openly a cornerstone of their agenda is male dominance. So, uh, but all these groups, I think, see feminism at, in opposition to their their demands. Even though there's some women who support them, as there were some women in the Klan, but you know, their attacks on Pelosi and on AOC and that that naked doll that somebody was like carrying around on a stick during January 6th. Why did the doll, you know, with a noose on his neck, why did the doll have to be naked, right? There's mm-hmm. a lot of misogyny and male dominance here. I, I think the abortion um, position that they take is motivated by two things or maybe three. One is they need more white babies, right? And um, abortion, the, the white women's um, reproductive activity has been steadily decreasing. Secondly, the abortion language gives them a kind of moral alibi for what they are doing, right? It gives them a kind of moral high ground. And I think also feminism is seen by a lot of these people like Anders Baring Breivik, who was the mass murderer in Norway, you'll recall a few years ago, mm-hmm. he really targeted the feminists of Norway because he saw them as weakening men 
and causing the opening of the borders to refugees. So he saw feminism as kind of a key player in social justice movements and changing the culture and the, con- the conventions of life in ways that would um, thwart their goals. So they're, they, I think they're, you know, they're, they're by disposition anti-feminist and misogynist, but I think it also plays a role in their political strategizing. Okay, well, we'll have to leave it there. But uh, Lind- Linda Martin Alkoff, thanks so much for joining us this evening on WBAI 99.5 FM. Great to be here. Thanks, John. You bet. When we come back, we'll talk about a big victory for black history in Brooklyn with one of the activists who fought for years to make it happen. That was Mahalia Jackson and Nat King Cole performing Steal Away, a song of the Underground Railroad. And you're listening to the Independent News Hour on WBAI New York. I'm John Tarleton, Editor-in-Chief of the Independent, New York City's progressive newspaper and website. You can find us online at independent.org, and that's with a Y-I-N-D-Y-P-E-N-D-E-N-T dot O-R-G. In our next segment, we're going to talk about a big victory for black history in Brooklyn that was recently won. But first, I want to encourage everyone who can do so to give generously to WBAI. You can give by calling 516-620-3602 or going straight to give to WBAI.org. Again, that phone number is 516-620-3602. WBAI is community radio, and it's the support of listeners like yourself that keeps us on the air. And the station can certainly use your help at this time. Uh, we really only can do it with, with our listeners. So once again, that phone number is 516-620-3602 or give number to WBAI.org. I'll share that number again later in the show. Now, earlier this month, the Landmarks and Preservation Commission of New York City announced its plans to confer historic landmark status to the Truesdell House, also known as 227 Duffield Street or 227 Abolitionist Place. Not only did the announcement come as Black History Month began, but it was also a victory for the activists rallying behind the downtown Brooklyn home in a years-long fight. The home, owned by anti-slavery activists Harriet and Thomas Lee Truesdell in the 1850s, was part of the Underground Railroad, and many families in the area were also involved in anti-slavery activism. One person crucial in getting the building granted historic landmark status is Mama Joy Chattel. In 2005, Chattel, who was raising her grandchildren and running her hair salon business out of the home, was served an eviction notice along with others on the block. 
Although she ultimately settled with the city in court, this only began her fight to preserve the historical significance of the home. She ultimately turned the building into a community center that celebrated and educated about black history. Chatel tried once to get the building conferred historic landmark status and was denied. She died in 2014. The home belonged to private developers slated to turn it into a 13-story luxury apartment building until February's victory, thanks to the Friends of Abolitionist Place. The group that was founded by community activists, including Aaliyah uh, Baki Vaughn and Imani Henry, here to talk about the home's significance and her mother's role in making the community aware of the home's rich history is Shawnee Lee. Shawnee, welcome to the show. Hi, how are you? Great. Great to be here, and thanks for having me. You bet. It's great to have you with us. Now, uh, first of all, can you uh, give us a little bit of background on the historical significance of 227 uh, Abolition Place or 227 Duffield Street, as as it's been known? I'm sorry. I always call it 227 Abolitionist Place. Okay. (laughs) So, well, it was owned by Thomas and Harriet Lee Truesdale, who were prominent abolitionists in New York or, or in New England, Rhode Island, before moving to Brooklyn. And they lived on Duffield Street from 1851 to 1863. So Harriet Truesdale served on the organizing committee of the Anti-Slavery Convention of American Women that convened um, in Philadelphia in 1838. She was also the treasurer of the Providence Ladies Anti-Slavery Society. And she was the founding member of the Rhode Island Anti-Slavery. Well, actually, Thomas Truesdale was the the founding member of the Rhode Island Anti-Slavery Society and a colleague of Louis Tappan, who we know was a a very prominent abolitionist. So they were also um, friends with William Lloyd Garrison, who frequented their house and even stayed with them before he left to depart for the World's Anti-Slavery Convention in London, which was in 1840. And the house is believed to be a, a part of the Underground Railroad as well. Definitely. There's there's um, imprints in the basement that were, were cinder blocked and it shows like an archway. That archway used to be an opening. It was basically a tunnel that led from one house to the other. So it was connecting the houses where the enslaved Africans would um, go to from house to house. Also, um, maybe up, we believe it may have led all the way up to Bridge Street Church, which is a block and a half away from from 227 Abolitionist Place. So you could actually, you could see the arch. You also, my mother also came across um, a door, which was covered up by sheetrock. She pulled the sheetrock down and a door was exposed and she found out that that door um, was led to a drop, like a seven foot drop that the fugitives would drop down into and come through that door, through the basement, which led them to the tunnel, which connected to the other homes. It's just- Extraordinary. It's so, oh my gosh. 
you get chills, you know, especially when you see the door and you see the archway and you feel and you you just sense the urgency and what everyone went through, even the Truesdales, because you know, being an abolitionist, you're you're risking your life. Right. And and that was the era of the Fugitive uh, Slave Act. Um, yes, it was in 18 contained very yes. harsh punishments for people. Uh, yes. Aiding, yes. aiding the, the Underground Railroad. And, and what drove your mother to push so hard to protect uh, protect this building? And how do you want the community to remember her? Well, she was actually protecting herself from getting evicted. Okay. Because eminent domain was uh, declared on her home and she received a yellow um, paper on her door along with the neighbors stating she was being evicted by the city. So she, like I said, she was a grandmother and she was the guardian for five of her grandchildren while tending to her business, her hair salon, with her home just above the hair salon. So she was um, she was a hardworking woman. She was, you know, and I think when she saw that notice on the door, she was not one to take a threat like that lightly, especially when it comes to the livelihood of herself and her family. So she did not take that for an answer. She took the city to court along with the help of Fury that, you know, I definitely want to mention Fury that's um, Families United for Racial and Economic Equality. They were, they were definitely instrumental in helping my mom go to court as well as the South Brooklyn Legal Society. Okay. Um, they went to court. And um, it was settled and she was able to keep her home along with the six other homeowners on that block. So she reversed eminent domain. And that, I believe, is a first. That's very hard to do in New York. You I mean, let's let's put it seriously. There were people who were telling her, please just pack up. Please look for a place, hurry up and do what you need to do, but you, you know, you need to do it fast. And she just was not going for that. Plus she's a Leo. (laughs) (laughs) Right. And what do you think the factor was that made you successful in getting the home granted uh, historic landmark status the second time around? You were denied the first time. Did last year's Black Lives Matter protests uh, change the dynamics or were there other factors you think? You know, I think it was a combination of everything it is like enough is enough you have the the movement from the tragedies um that happened over the summer you had um the the pandemic just emotionally draining everyone um and people were just tired and i think it brought a human feel and a human a compassion to everyone and Mm. you 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 were able to look a little deeper this time because 
everyone was crying out, oh, you know, yeah, he got shot by a cop, but he must have been a criminal or, you know, it's an isolated incident. And this summer proved, no, there's no isolated incidences. This is um, this is something that is a pandemic in itself. You know, racism is a form is is a pandemic. It's an illness. It's a sickness that needs to be exposed and acknowledged and dealt with. And I think, really, with the help of uh, Imani Henry from Equality from uh, Flatbush for Flatbush, and Aaliyah uh, Vaughn from a Circle uh, Circle Justice Circle Justice uh, Innovations. Mm -hmm. Circle of Justice Innovations, my apologies. They galvanized together when they found out that the home was slated for demolition. They were like, there is no way, no way we can let another piece of history be destroyed. Uh, So they put together petition, they rallied, they protested, they pushed for landmarks to put the home on the calendar. And I I really have to give them credit for for not taking no for an answer. They were very strategic and organized. And I really appreciate them for that. And I have to always, you know, give them their just dues because they really worked it hard. They went in. Okay. And we, we, we have just one more minute here. Um, can you tell us a little bit about uh, briefly what uh, future plans are for the building now that it's a historic landmark and also uh, where uh, our listeners can learn more about the home and how to support you in, in your next steps? Okay, so um, Friends of Abolitionist Place, that's the social medias that we're using. So go to Twitter, go to Instagram and Facebook and just look up Friends of Abolitionist Place. It is their intention to keep my mom's vision of creating a museum and heritage center where you could find out information from all t- you know types of uh, Black history, culture, education, um, performing arts. So that is, you know, that was our vision and they want to make sure it comes to fruition. So you can check us out on all of those uh, social media links from there. You could DM um, if you want to volunteer and, and support the vision and the mission, because this is, my mom said, we want more than just a plaque. Why can't we have a museum? And they're really helping to really make this manifest. And before I leave, I just want to say, please, everyone listening, make sure you become a WBAI buddy. It is imperative because we need voices um, such as the the sister who you heard on, right before me, as well as the story of 227 Abolitionist Place and Mama Joy, who was the grandmother, on a business owner and a homeowner. Okay, well, thank you for sharing that final thought, as well as uh, everything else you had to share today. Uh, Shawnee Lee from Friends of Abolitionist Place, thanks for joining us on WBAI this evening. And thank you so much for having me. It's you a bet. All righty. Well, when we come back, we'll look back on the 10th anniversary of the Wisconsin uprising with one of the labor union activists who helped organize it.
Okay. That was legendary folk musician Ann Feeney leading the crowd in singing Solidarity Forever at the Wisconsin State Capitol in February 2011. Feeney recently died from COVID complications at the age of 69. You're listening to the Independent News Hour on WBAI New York. I'm John Tarleton, editor-in-chief of the Independent New York City's progressive newspaper and website. Uh, before we continue with our third segment, I want to once again encourage everyone who can do so to give generously to WBAI. You can give by calling 516-620-3602 or going straight to give to WBAI.org. Once again, that number, 516-620-3602. WBAI is community radio, and it's the supporters of listeners like yourself that keeps us on the air. From Brooklyn to the Bronx, from Jackson Heights to Crown Heights, from Houston Street to Hoboken to the Hudson Valley, it's listeners like you who keep this station going. Once again, the phone number is 516-620-3602. Please make those phones ring and do your part to help keep WBAI beaming its 50,000-watt signal across New York City and beyond. I will share that number one more time at the end of the show. But again, right now, you could call 516-620-3602. And now for our final segment, we turn to Wisconsin, where 10 years ago this week, public sector labor unionists and their supporters took over the Wisconsin State Capitol building. They were protesting Republican Governor Scott Walker's push to strip Wisconsin public sector workers of their collective bargaining rights and rollback gains they had won over many decades. The protest garnered national attention and would later provide a model of 24-7 protest encampment uh, for Occupy Wall Street, which took off later that year. I covered the Wisconsin State Capitol takeover as a reporter sleeping over in the State Capitol building with the protesters. Joining us this evening to talk about the Wisconsin uprising and its significance a decade later is Peter Rickman. He was an officer in the grad student union at the University of Wisconsin, which played a key role in organizing the Capitol takeover. And these days, he's still very active in the labor movement. He's the president of the Milwaukee Area Hospitality and Service Workers Organization. Peter, thank you for joining us this evening. Thanks for having me on, John. You bet. It's great to have you with us. Uh, so the takeover of the Wisconsin State Capitol seemed to erupt out of nowhere, but in fact, there was actually years of organizing that preceded the big moment. Uh, can you elaborate on that as well as what you believe was at stake in that battle? Yeah, it's a pretty uh, weighty question there to get things started. Uh, you know, when you mentioned this was Governor Walker's proposal to strip public sector workers of our bargaining rights and the voice and seat of the table that every working person ought to have with their boss. It wasn't a Governor Walker proposal. This was a proposal by the Koch brothers and the rest of the 1% to attack unions and to break down the public sector, not just public sector unions, but the public sector, the role that government plays in building a democratic society. And that's actually the best way to answer your question, John, because the work that led into uh, a seemingly to the outside spontaneous uprising of 18 to 22 year old undergraduate students and 20 something overeducated grad students when it, when it came to a militant defense of, of worker rights didn't just happen out of nowhere. It's because for years on the university of Wisconsin campus, 
a number of us had been building, you know, what I think is best characterized by a term, an anti-austerity front. We were engaged in an ideological struggle against the onset of neoliberalism and higher education and society more broadly. And we'd worked together building a student worker alliance from undergraduate students to graduate students and graduate student workers and blue collar workers and faculty and academic and academic staff, um, struggling not only to defend what we had, but for a vision for what we thought higher education and the university system and the public sector ought to be. And that included things like fighting against the university administration's attempt to uh, unilaterally increase fees, not only making the campus less affordable for working class Wisconsinites to uh, find their way to a literal world class education in our own state, uh, to uh, defending blue collar workers ability to ensure that they had retirement security and healthcare access um, through union jobs employed by the public sector instead of private contractors. So there'd been a tremendous amount of work, John, that went into that anti-austerity front among students and workers on the campus for a couple of years. So when governor Walker and the Koch brothers and the rest of the 1% and their political allies in the Republican party put forward a proposal to strip public employees of our union rights, This was not some sort of stretch to get undergrads and grads to say we are going to engage in militant direct action to defend unions. Right. And when Yola initially went to the Capitol to protest on on February 14th, 2011, um, I I think you had one thing in mind, but then it it quickly became this 24-7 occupation that more and more groups uh, uh, joined in in ways that Yola hadn't anticipated. Yeah, yeah, no, it's a, it's an important point, John, that to, to draw that out, um, this student worker alliance that we had built combating austerity and neoliberalism in the university system had been building for months around, uh, an action to kick off our fight to win equitable funding in the biennial state budget. And, uh, we were kicking things off with a march and delivery of Valentine saying, I heart UW with apologies to our friends here from New York and the iconic I heart. <laughs> we can share we the logo. totally ripped you people off. We love, we love it. Um, uh, we, we were delivering these Valentines that had these fun tropes in there, like governor Walker, don't break my heart. You know, the university is the sure. leading part of a vibrant Wisconsin. Blah, blah, blah. So we were going to deliver these Valentines uh, to the governor's office calling for equitable funding. Um, and we had been building around this for months. Um, and, you know, when, when Governor Walker, um, as the phrase goes, as he put it, uh, dropped the bomb proposing this uh, measure to strip public employees of our union rights, yeah, our, our steering committee, our core group of, of activists and leaders came together and had a discussion of, well, should we continue this action based upon funding the university system and the public sector, or should we shift our focus to defending the workers who comprise the university and the public sector. And it was a snap decision because we had built solidarity. We had built an ideological framework for people to understand. There's a clear line between combating austerity in the way that we fund our public services and defending union rights, whether it's amongst public sector workers or otherwise. So a bunch of 18 to 22 year olds and a bunch of educated grad students were very quickly coming together on the idea that our action on February 14th would be about defending public sector worker unions and our, uh, and, and, and our rights. Um, and that led to that first march. And it's also what led to uh, that thousands of people cramming into the Capitol and then engaging in even further militant action to start occupying the Capitol and, and kick off what was that historic occupation and, and struggle over labor rights. 
Right. And, and you you had uh, the teacher unions, uh, the public school teacher unions uh, really uh, uh, kind of piled on with you all. And then and then all sorts of other unions from across the state. It was it was quite a, a sight to, to see when when I got to the Capitol building there. Well, this uh, is an interesting week to look back 10 years on and try to refresh my memory with details and, you know, and preparing for some other conversations like this, John, I, I had occasion to look back and recall that. It was in the, the, the days after grad students and undergrads and, and our public sector worker comrades marched on the Capitol that the Madison teachers uh, called for a, 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 essentially, a, you know, a, a strike uh, at the, in the school system, a sick out um, that then spurred others to do so. And that created this cascading snowball effect of public sector workers engaging in what amounted to general strike-like activity, at least amongst public employees. Um, but I've always felt, and I, and I think this is a fair read on things, John, is that <laughs> when you look at that, what gave those first groupings of teachers the confidence to take that action is that they saw that there were these unlikely suspects, undergrads and grad students, uh, basically taking on this fight for public sector union rights head on and saying, no, we are not going to cooperate in these further attacks on the working class that we've been living with, whether we call it a defunding of our university system or privatizing education or assaults on union rights, we're not right. going to put up with that. So folks took that action and it gave others confidence. And then teachers taking action gave further groupings of public employees the confidence to engage in that sort of militant direct action that spawned and snowballed. And I think that's one of the key lessons here uh, 10 years on of, of how we can build, you know, a different and more just and equitable and decent world is that it does take action, leadership through action to bring and build the confidence that the rest of the working class can participate in something and truly affect what might be a transformation of their material conditions in their lives. Right. Now, for people who might be skeptical or, you know, even outright critical of what you all did, what would you say was the difference between the takeover of the Wisconsin State Capitol in 2011 and the recent very violent January 6th insurrection on Capitol Hill uh, uh, that it, everybody uh, knows about now. And, and, and some of the other uh, right-wing protests at state capitals last year, like in Michigan, what, what do you see as the, the difference? Um, I don't know if I could say there's any one difference, John. I think there are myriad differences that are probably worth exploring. And, um, you know, what the, the Capitol insurrection was just that. It was a violent insurrection seeking to overthrow the control of government. I mean, let's let's not mince words here. That's entirely what was contemplated amongst the leading edge uh, of, of those involved in plotting that January 6th um, failure of a coup. Um, and and it, that is distinguished from the capital occupation of 2011, where we were seeking to not only stop a particular policy, we weren't trying to seize the levers of government, although maybe some critics from the left would say we should have. But, you know, the truth is we're seeking to stop this further assault on a democratic society and the rights that every working person ought to have. And, and in fact, our, our tactical choices of uh, a march and then an occupation and an, an expanded occupation of a capital were, you know, put forward and, and taken on in an attempt to further and deepen democracy by engaging the whole of the people of Wisconsin in a debate about what sort of society we want to live in and what sort of policies we want to have around the 
uh, around public services and around unions. Um, so our militant action was about expanding and deepening democracy and getting more people to participate and bringing some sunlight to the policies because we knew that the vast majority of people who punch a clock for a living and bring home a paycheck would stand with us and saying, we think unions are good and we want our government and our public services to deliver for working people. So we engaged in that sort of militant activity. On the other hand, the capital insurrectionists, uh, aside from the fact that they were armed and seeking to take over the government, were absolutely and fundamentally anti-democratic. They don't want democratic processes. They didn't want an election to play out. They wanted mob rule to take hold. So, I mean, we could go from there on a whole number of other things, including ideological differences. But just fundamentally, the uprising in Wisconsin was about democracy and a democratic society. And the capital insurrection was about a right-wing revanchist fascist takeover of our government. Right. Um, I certainly remember you could walk into that Capitol building at any time and you could find, you know, musicians like Ann Feeney performing. There was an open mic when there wasn't music for for people to say whatever they wanted to say. There were, uh, you know, kitchens set up to feed people, libraries at uh, sort of that, uh, uh, you know, it takes a village sort of uh, vibe that would later uh, emerge at Zuccotti Park as well. Um, So we just have like maybe uh, two, three more minutes here and there's a lot more ground I want to cover. Real quickly, could you say, would you say there was a, a, any sort of inspiration uh, for what happened in Wisconsin from what had happened in Egypt in Tahrir Square just a, a week or two earlier when millions of protesters uh, took over the, the, the Tahrir Square and, and, and toppled a longtime dictator? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I, I, I got to affirm that for sure. I mean, you couldn't be anyone with a social conscience at the time um, see that and not be inspired. I mean, these folks in Egypt were confronting a murderous dictator um, backed by the military uh, and, and their action put their very lives in danger and, and that of their loved ones. And I think for most of us who were involved in the sort of, you know, mobilization and, and, and direct action um, in the February of 2011 uprising, we, we did that without those sort of risks. And, and I think the sentiment was, look, if Egyptians can occupy a square and overthrow an undemocratic government and a, and a violent uh, uh, dictatorship, we can engage in this sort of militant direct action to win a more democratic government and, and a defense of our rights. So you, we, we were inspired, certainly. We were given a little bit of a playbook about some tactical maneuvers. And I think we had some steel in our spine from the sense that we are taking risks, but not nearly the kind of risks that those folks took on. And look, they were successful. And maybe we can be too. Right. And we have just one more minute here. Uh, can you say real, describe real quickly what you think the long-term impact of the uh, Wisconsin state capital takeover uh, was on, on social movements in this country? And if you want to say a, a few words about what you're doing now uh, in Milwaukee with the hospitality and service workers. John, you, you saved this most substantial and difficult question to the end. We got a minute left here, buddy. Was that a ploy to get me to come back? You know, the truth is we have to view uh, the Wisconsin uprising of 2011 
as uh, a point in a longer term continuum of the struggle against neoliberalism and the struggle to combat austerity and the assaults on working class people. And we have to view it as something that is a, uh, a step forward, not a loss, but a step forward, even if we weren't victorious at the time in that struggle to create a more just, equitable and democratic society. And I think the impacts on social movements from tactical innovations to the cadre that it shaped coming out of that, um, that story is not yet told even 10 years on. Uh, and I think it would be uh, quite presumptuous for me to, to try to answer that question thoroughly Fair in enough. just a brief period of time. So I'm going to leave it at that and say that, you know, I continue along with many of other comrades from the 2011 uprising, including my uh, friend Max Love, who was uh, who I met during that period of time, who was my partner in crime, as it were, at the Service and Hospitality Workers Union. Uh, you know, many of us continue to fight for a just, equitable and democratic society rooted in the struggle of the working class to balance the power between the boss class and the rest of us. All right. Um, and I'm inspired by those who continue keeping the struggle going uh, around the country 10 years on and, and building on those shoulders that were uh, erected uh, well before us in the CIO movement and the civil rights movement and everything else in that sure. continuum. All righty. Peter Rickman, uh, uh, organizer in the Wisconsin State Capitol takeover 10 years ago and still very active in the labor movement today. Thank you so much for joining us this evening on WBAI. Thanks for having me on, John. You bet. So that uh, wraps it up for tonight's show. Many thanks to our producers, Amba Gagarian and Olivia Olivia Reggio, for all their help with today's show. And please remember to give generously to WBAI, 516-620-3602. And we'll be back same time next week. <laughs>